Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time that we uh, have to, to gather and to worship you through uh, just simply our, our gathering, our being with one another, our fellowshipping with each other. We pray, Lord, uh, that you would lead us uh, as we continue to worship you uh, through the studying of your word. Uh, we pray, God, that you would, by your spirits, illuminate the meaning of these last few verses, that we would uh, see what is said here and that we would understand and that you would uh, just speak to each one of us, Lord, to see applications that we can draw uh, from this passage. Lord, I am so grateful for the letter of Galatians, its boldness, its directness, its defense of the gospel and grace. Lord, as, uh, just as an individual that has received this grace, Lord, I am so grateful that my relationship with you is not conditional on my actions. It's conditioned on the work of Jesus on the cross, that he is my savior, that he paid for my sins, past, present, and future. And Lord, uh, through his work, we are justified in Christ. And so we pray that you would help us, Lord, not only to understand grace, but that we would uh, walk in grace and that we would be people of grace. Lord, help us uh, to honor you with our lives, uh, for we are so grateful for all that you have done on our behalf. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. <clears throat> See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one, be cause, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Brethren, amen. And Father, we do thank you for this word. We ask that you would lead us now, and it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in the, the closing sections of, of Galatians. This is a, a really neat section for, for a number of reasons, but it, in essence, Paul is sort of summarizing the letter of Galatians and the high points, and he's bringing it to a close uh, with directness and clarity. In verse 11, he says, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. On this verse, it sort of is uh, interjected, just sort of, uh, it, it seems out of context or just like in the flow, all of a sudden this verse comes in and there's a few speculations about what Paul is saying. Um, it's believed that at this point, Paul had a, uh, I think the name was Emanuenza, but it's a fancy name for like a secretary or assistant that he had that traveled with him. 
He wasn't necessarily a scribe, but he served in sort of scribal duties. I don't know how you imagine uh, Paul writing his letters. If you're imagining a guy with like a, you know, a feather and an ink pad and writing, that's, that's not how it happened. Most likely, Paul would be pacing the room, scratching his head, thinking, speaking what he wants to be written down, and the individual would then write down the words of Paul. In most of his letters, he gives credit to this individual that's writing for him. And many commentators believe at this point, what happens is Paul takes the pen out of the guy's hand and he writes the last few verses himself. Paul, not being a scribe, not being somebody who wrote a lot, uh, his writing would look very different than the scribe or the secretary that was writing. Um, It's been... uh, suspect there's a there's a thought that maybe part of the thorn in Paul's side was that his eyes were going bad and so he had to write with bigger letters in order to see what he was writing some speculate that maybe Paul could see fine and the last bit of the letter he wanted to be direct and loud and in your face and so if you have this really long email and the last paragraph was in all caps, is sort of like the thought that he's trying to get our attention uh, in authenticating that it was he himself who was writing this letter. Uh, he, I think, puts in these bold letters, these big letters, all of the points that he wants us to take home from Galatians. And so in verse 12, he begins with the problem that he's been facing in Galatia. He says, those who desire to make a good showing of the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. And so this is the backdrop to the letter of Galatians. Galatians is believed to be the the earliest letter that the Apostle Paul wrote that we have. Um, He had been in this region sharing the gospel of Christ to non-Jewish individuals. And then as he went through and the gospel was received and people responded and they were uh, baptized and and they began to live their lives under uh, the grace of God, there were individuals who came from Judaism that we know as the Judaizers who followed in his wake. And they began adding to what Paul said, saying that in addition to responding by faith, you need to observe the Mosaic law. You need to be circumcised, and you need to go through all of the Jewish traditions. In Acts chapter 15, which we believe happens right after Galatians was written, uh, Luke documents that they went as far as to say, unless you're circumcised, unless you observe the Mosaic law, you cannot be saved. Their focus was on externals. And Paul exposes their motivation with this so that We're told that they're trying to make a good showing in the flesh, the externals, so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. As I've been reading this, uh, I keep thinking about Ben Howard. I remember when I visited Japan, I, uh, I mean, Japan wasn't one of my favorite places to visit in the world, but that could have been that I was just there for three days and I didn't really have time. I was just jet lagged for the whole time there. But I do remember thinking like all of the little kids were super cute. They'd all like walk to school and they had these little like square backpacks and they just all looked the same. And 
And I guess the backpacks are like a big deal. I forget what it is. Either when you go to kindergarten or you graduate from kindergarten to first grade, they all get these little square backpacks. And I remember commenting to Ben, I'm like, man, all the kids look the same. It's like they're marching to school. And he's like, well, the kids here, the nail that stands out is the one that gets hit. And so all of the kids like very much try to stay within the looks and the composure of everybody else because they don't want to stand out for fear of getting into trouble. And I, and I sense that this is what Paul is saying when he says that their reason that they want to make a good showing in the flesh and to compel you to be circumcised, it's simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross. And they recognize if they were to follow after Jesus as a Messiah and to live by grace and to break away from the Mosaic law and the covenants, which were never designed to save you, they were simply designed to point you to the Messiah, they would stand out and they would get hit. And by the end of this section, Paul said, I got hit a lot and continued to get hit a lot for the sake of the gospel. While Jesus promises eternal life and security and hope and joy in this world, he doesn't necessarily promise you Disneyland. He promises you persecution and suffering and family members that will turn against you. And there'll be suffering. And he says at the end of this that he bears the, the scars of being a bondservant of Christ. And so he says that they are trying to compel you not to live for Christ so that they won't get persecuted. They didn't care about the spiritual well-being of these Galatians. They were ashamed and thought that the cross was foolishness. And so they focused on externals, not internals. He goes on to say in verse 13, For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. And so right away, he he exposes the hypocrisy of the Judaizers that were going around. They got circumcised and they said to follow the Mosaic law. But they picked and chose pieces of the Mosaic law to follow. They had laid it out. But the reality is, and Paul, more than any other individual, would know that there was no way you could keep the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law simply showed your inadequacy and your inability to keep it. And that's why there were sacrifices every year. And you had to continually be reminded of your failure before God ultimately pointing that this Messiah would come to deliver you. Uh, Peter, I believe, exposed them. And he said, why do you guys do what we could never even do? Why do you put this yoke on them when we don't keep this yoke? And so he exposes their hypocrisy. And he points out, really, to be circumcised is super easy. And they did that. They were circumcised probably as infants or if they were adult converts, I'll give them that that was a little bit hard, well, a lot harder um, to be circumcised as an adult. But to keep the law, they could never do. And their motivation, again, was to boast in their, convert, in their converts. Uh, so often I think about this, is I think as they went out and however they were able to document whether you were circumcised or not circumcised, clearly It was something that uh, people knew if you were or you weren't uh, because it'd be really easy to hide if you weren't or if you were. 
And so they were having these people circumcised to boast themselves up and to get sort of notches in their belt. Um, I remember early as I was transitioning into the military, or not in the military, into the ministry, while I was still in the military, I I had the opportunity to serve in a really special way uh, for three years. One of the most uh, unique and special um, things that I had the opportunity of doing was leading into Hell Week. I was an instructor, and I would obviously go into Hell Week as an instructor, but the Friday after the Friday when classes continued before Hell Week, there was a volunteer Christian meeting that if the students wanted to come participate in in the meeting, they could. And the chaplain had asked if I would come and share my story and sort of lead it, and so I did. And the first one I did, I showed up in uniform, and I realized that that was a bad that was just a bad it was a mistake on my part because. I was instructor Hanson in uniform from the position of sharing about the gospel. But on the first or second one, I, I shared the gospel and, and, and I never really done, like I'd never really been in that position before. And so I was really just trying to mimic what other people did. And I, I hadn't really come into my own and comfort in my own skin as a Christian. And so well, what did Billy Graham do? What do other guys do? Well, they have everybody raise their hand up or walk the aisle or whatever. And so the first one, I did that, and it was like half the class raised their hands. And I was like, uh-oh, like, we got a problem. Like, like, I don't know if it was a problem, but it was like, I wasn't, I was thinking like maybe one kid would lift his hand up. And so I went from that, and the chaplain like pulled me aside. I thought I was naturally in trouble. I didn't know where the guy stood theologically. And... But through that journey, I stopped doing that because I, I sort of felt like the only reason that I was asking guys to like raise their hand or to come forward was for notches in my own belt. It wasn't for their sake or their benefit. Like I, I, I really came to deep convictions like we don't have people come forward. We don't raise hands. And theologically, for me, I'm not, first off, I'm not saying that's bad if churches do that. But for me, when I look at scriptures, like I don't want to do that for the sake of, I think it would be for my own pride. And I don't necessarily think it's even, what I think in scripture, when I see the raising of the hands and walking the aisles, I think it's what we're going to do next week. Like what we do next week, that is, is the biblical case for walking forward. That's what, what, what baptism is. It's the, I publicly am making a stand and I'm walking the aisle and I want the world to know, and I'll say a lot about it next 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 week. But I can see Amber there, and and it's like Amber gave her life to Christ in the last year, and it's super special. And and last week when she was sharing why she like wanted to get baptized, it was like I, it's my time to go public. I want the world to know, and I, and I want to declare that I've made this decision and this and to continue living for Him in a way that's public and 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 that and 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 that's what we're like that's the kind of the process in the christian life now back to the text verse 13 he's like walking the aisle sure seems a lot easier than getting circumcised i think we can get a bunch of amens from the guys here but but it's literally they want to boast in their flesh that they had gone in 
behind Paul, these people who had given their lives to Christ, they were walking with Christ, they were Paul's brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul saw no reason as a Jewish man to have them circumcised because circumcision for Paul, it was a covenant between God and Israel. And these were Gentiles outside of that. And God had sort of revealed more about his plan for humanity. And so they wanted to come along and they wanted to have these guys circumcised to have some flesh cut off of their bodies. And in having the flesh cut off their bodies, they were going to boast in that action. Look at what they had done. They were literally getting feathers in their cap for having these people circumcised. They didn't ultimately care about the the individuals spiritually. They cared about pleasing man and not God. And Paul says in verse 14, may it never be, but may it never be that I would boast except in the cross. And so he has this, this push back. And he says, may it never be that I boast in anything except for the cross of our Lord Jesus, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's like, I walked that road. I've, I've played that game. I, I did what they did beyond what they did. And when I met Jesus, that whole world of religion died to me. The whole system of trying to impress men He was dead to it. And he no longer cared what people thought about him. He only cared about what Jesus thought about him. If you have your Bibles open, please turn with me over to Philippians chapter 3. I feel like through Galatians, we've gone to this section over and over and over again. But when Paul says that he is not going to boast anything in anything anymore except for the cross of Christ, we need to look at what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He says in the first verse, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write these same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. So Paul continually repeated the same thing over and over and over again. Grace needs to be repeated. Our tendency is to go off track. And so he needed to remind them of the importance and the centrality of, of grace in the Christian's life. He goes on to say in verse two, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. Who he's addressing is the Judaizers. They were circumcised in the flesh, but they were a false circumcision. They were evil workers. He couldn't speak any more harshly against these individuals. Then he contrasts them and he says about themselves, the apostles, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They put all of their confidence in their flesh and their outward actions and the things that they were doing and their performance before God. And Paul says, we are the the true circumcision And we don't put our confidence in the flesh. What we put our confidence in is what Jesus did on our behalf. We worship in the spirit of God and the glory of Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. 
If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness, which is in the law found blameless. So he's addressing two points of the Judaizers that they were saying, Paul doesn't have the authority to speak on these matters. Paul says, what are you guys talking about? I was circumcised on the eighth day. And then he gives the backdrop of why he was circumcised on the eighth day. Because he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's, he's Israeli to the, all the way back to the beginning. Like He wasn't grafted in. And then he says concerning the Mosaic law, as I lived according to their rules, when I look at the standards, he's like, I was blameless by human standards. You could find no fault against me. I was found blameless in verse 6. But whatever things were gained to me, and these things gave Paul great authority, great persuasion over men. He had resources and he was going places uh, people speculate that he was going to be the leader of the Sanhedrin and so for him to walk away from all of these things is huge but whatever things were gained to me those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ the worldly things he crucified the authority and privilege that he had under the Jew- Jewish religion they were gone to him Those things I have counted lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, dung, that I may gain Christ and may not be found and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may obtain to the resurrection from the dead. This is huge. He goes on to say that he hasn't obtained perfection as a Christian now knowing Christ, seeing true righteousness in Christ on the road to Damascus, Paul was put in his place and he was humbled. And he said, I'm not perfect and I'm not going to attain it in this life. I, I press on. I look forward to the day when I'm freed from this sinful body. I don't worry about the things in the past, either successes or failures, which I think is wise for us to do. In Christ, we live in the moment under grace, looking towards the cross, pressing forward to our hope in him. You can go back to verse 14 in Galatians chapter 6. And so when Paul says, but may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We see that he puts no confidence in the flesh. His confidence relies completely and solely on what Jesus did on him and on the cross. So what, is this, what does this mean? He goes on to say, verse 15, for neither, 
Neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. He says to be uncircumcised is nothing. To be circumcised is nothing. To be a new creation is everything. To be born again, to be circumcised of the heart, as other writers would write in the New Testament. He says our works are worthless. And so as we come next week, like a lot of this is a preview to next week, because I think like we don't have circumcision, but we have baptism. And baptism is one of these things that is significant. And it's also not the word I'm looking for. It's symbolic. So to be baptized doesn't save you. Baptism is like a wedding ring. So for me to like take off my wedding ring or to lose my wedding ring, like that'd be a big deal. But it doesn't make me unmarried. It doesn't mean, or if I don't have my wedding ring on, it doesn't mean that I love my wife any less or that I, the, the vows and the commitments we made, you know, 20 years ago, like that, that's, that, it doesn't make that all go away. But I wear the wedding ring and it's a symbol of that time. And so it is, it's significant. But before I was married, if I slipped on a wedding ring, it didn't make me married. And so it's kind of, it's important, but being baptized doesn't save you. Not being baptized doesn't unsave you. Baptism is important, yes. But really, it's about the new creation of what baptism symbolizes is that when you trust in Christ in your Savior, we're told in Ephesians 1.13 that at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes and seals you and indwells you. And Paul says this external stuff doesn't matter. Whatever side you're on, it doesn't matter. Paul obviously was circumcised as a Jewish man. As a Jewish man, he says, this isn't important. To my Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ who haven't been circumcised, he says, don't be circumcised just because you're trying to appeal to man and you're trying to become like us. That's of no value to you. Nor circumcision, for neither circumcision is anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So he says to those that are of the true circumcision. And Acts chapter 7, verse 51, Stephen would say to those as he was about to be stoned for his faith in Christ, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised, they are actually circumcised. But he's speaking of the circumcision of their heart. You men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You are doing just as your fathers did. He would go on and say, which one of our forefathers didn't stone and like kill the prophets that God sent to us to give a message? You've always been stubborn. You've always resisted the work that God has done. And you're doing it now. And this would tick them off and it would get him killed. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 through 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. 
We just read Philippians 3.3 where he writes, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so when he says, and those who walk by this rule, to those who are Gentiles and have responded to the gospel and have believed in Christ for salvation, have believed in the promise and have become a new, new creation in Christ. He says to those may peace and mercy be upon them. And then he says, and upon the Israel of God, which is a very interesting phrase. Uh, There's, you can unpack this a lot. What it's not saying, I don't believe what it's saying, is this isn't a case for replacement theology saying that the church has replaced Israel. But I think what he's talking about is what we read in Romans 2 about the true circumcision. I believe what he's saying in the contrast, on the one hand, there's the Gentiles who have responded, who, is, who are the, the target of this letter, who he's writing to. Anyone who walks by this rule, peace and mercy upon them. And he says, and also upon the Israel of God. And I think what he's identifying here are people like Paul himself. The true Israel are those who are Jewish, who have responded to their Messiah in salvation. And this is the great divide uh, within the early church. The Jewish believers that have responded to Christ are Christians. But then you have the Gentile believers who have also responded. And how do they handle these two groups? I think this is what Romans is dealing with. The, the meshing of these two groups as one. What are the requirements? And so Paul isn't saying, my brothers and sisters, who really Peter was called to reach, those who are Jewish, who have responded to the gospel, they have experienced the peace of God as the Gentiles have. Uh, peace. It's something only God can give to us through the, go- through, through the gospel, through the cross. We have peace from God because we have peace with God because our sins have been paid for. Mercy is God withholding the wrath that is due us. There is nothing fair about this exchange. So often in our culture, we complain because we think, oh, this isn't fair that this is the only way. We don't want fairness with God. We need and desire mercy from God and we need his grace. He goes on to say in verse 17, from now on, let no one cause trouble for me. I think he's tired of these guys. They continually would plague him and follow behind him and undo the work that he did. Claiming that he didn't have the authority as as apostle. And here in Galatians, he, he shows his authority. He would demonstrate it. Following Galatians, he would go to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. He would submit himself to the original apostles and his teaching. And they said, there's no problem here. We are all in agreement And they sent a letter to the churches saying the same thing. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. I find it interesting that they're going around bragging and promoting scars on the body of circumcision. And Paul says, the only scars that I'm going to brag about 
are the scars and the word that he uses are scars that would be inflicted upon a slave. And he says, the wounds and the scars that I have on my body come from the punishment and the persecution I have received from walking away from my family, my culture, my tradition, and following after Jesus. And he received all sorts of persecution. And he said, if you want to talk about the flesh, the only thing I'll talk about is the beatings that I've taken for Christ. These afflictions that I have taken for being obedient to him. He goes on to say, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brethren. Amen. And I think this is the most appropriate word that he could have closed Galatians with is the word grace. Grace is what this book is all about. And so what do we learn from the book of Galatians? We're going to take communion. So if you need to start working on your sippy cups, you can do that. I think first and foremost in the book of Galatians, front and center in this letter is the exclusivity of God's grace. We don't earn our way to heaven. We don't pay back for our sins. We don't, uh, there's no like gap that we have to cover. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection paid for our sins, past, present, and future completely. Grace is the only way to God. Our relationship with him is contingent on his promise to us. There is a case in this book for defending grace. There are some things that we absolutely must stand for and fight for as a church. Grace cannot be infringed upon. This is everything. Finally, I see that there's a, there's a warning to us who have been saved by grace alone. There's a, there's a drifting that can happen. And I think that there's a warning to us not to drift from grace. And I think that this is why communion is so important. It's another symbol that we participate in. This is some juice or something that's in here. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the chemistry is of this little, the, the fluid in there. Nobody's gotten sick from it as far as I know. Um, and then there's like a wafer that takes me back to my childhood in the Catholic church. For those of us that were raised Catholic, we understand the little wafer in there. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's a symbol that we're to participate in as often as we do it. It takes us back to, to the picture of Jesus's body that was broken on the cross. We realize that it's not our works that save us. The cracker reminds us of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so when we start getting down on ourselves, getting beat up a little bit, thinking that we've messed up, you know, Britney Spears, the, oops, I did it one more time, that, that I got, somebody giggled maybe, or maybe it was just me within my, it was a song that was popular a while ago. Like, that's how I felt with sin. Like, it's like, oh man, I did it again. Why can I not break this cycle? God's going to do away with me. I think that this little wafer serves as a symbolic picture to remind us that, you know, Jesus died for all of your sins. He knew you before you were born. He knew every sin that you would commit. He would pay for them all in full. And this is grace. And the reality is, is grace is far more difficult to live under 
then a system of rules, a system of rules that we create would be so much easier to live by. But to recognize that God loves us so much that he paid for our lives on the cross once and for all is super humbling. And I think it's the key that keeps us to find that line of liberty so that we don't stumble into religion and we don't go into license, that we realize that he loves us. And the the Jews symbolizes the new covenant, this new relationship that we have in Christ. As we close with communion, I want to end with two quotes that I started the letter of Galatians with. When we first started this letter, I quoted from Martin Luther, who referred to the letter of Galatians as his spiritual bride. It was his favorite book in the Bible, this this Catholic monk who is so conditioned to uh, works and trying to earn his way to get to God. He tried to live the law. And in his trying to live for the law, he was a very wise man in that he understood his depravity. And he writes that before that how much he hated God and all of these rules because they were impossible to keep. And he would go to confession every single day for every little thing that he was aware of to where like the priest in charge was like, Luther, can you go like do something real? Like go commit a real sin. I'm sick of hearing about all this stuff. But the reality is, is Luther understood what sin was and how much of it he had. And then on those steps, when he had the words of Paul, really from Habakkuk, that the just shall live by faith. And he got up and he walked down the stairs and his whole life was transformed. At one quote, he wrote, to be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and peace with God by, the, by grace alone is the hardest thing. This man understood how difficult grace is to truly wrap our minds around that the creator of the universe would bestow upon us this relationship, not based on anything that we have done, but because of a promise. To forgive ourselves and to move into the future with Christ is difficult. He went on to say that grace releases sin and peace makes the conscience quiet. The two fiends that torment us are sin and conscience. But Christ has vanquished these two monsters and trodden them underfoot, both in this world and in the world to come. And as we take communion, as you are reminded of things in your life, your shortcomings, and Satan puts thoughts into your minds, Gunnar, you remember this? Do you remember when you thought that? Do you remember when you did this to that person? Certainly you're not good enough for heaven. Our response isn't to argue back with our goodness. Our response is, you're absolutely right. I am not. But Jesus provided the way. And this is what we do when we take communion. We reflect. We confess our sins. We remember Jesus's broken body on the cross and his blood of the new covenant that's in the juice. And we're also compelled to carry out the great commission 
that we are to proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. And with that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll take communion. Father, we are so grateful for your mercy and your grace. We, we hold this little plastic jar of juice and this little wafer, Lord, as symbols in our hands that remind us of what Jesus did on the cross for us. We thank you that he went to the cross and absorbed the wrath that was due each one of us and that he absorbed the wrath in full. We thank you that the word tells us that he is our propitiation, which means that he has satisfied the punishment that is due us. We thank you for the offer that you have given to each one of us through the cross. That we can continue to reject or we can respond in faith. And Father, we thank you that we have responded in faith. We thank you, Lord, for dying for us. We thank you that our sins are forgiven. We pray, Father, that you would help us to understand this reality clearly. That we would not only know grace, but that we would walk in grace. We thank you for the juice, which reminds us of this once and for all exchange. We don't need to get saved every day. We believe once and the transaction is complete. And then we continue our new life in Christ, walking in liberty. We pray, Father, that you would help us to keep our eyes on Christ and to find that balance in life in liberty, honoring you, living for you, walking with you. Father, help us to see the gifts that you have given us to serve you within the body of Christ. Help us, Lord, to be pleasing to you, not to earn our salvation or relationship with you, but because we have a relationship with you in Christ. And it's in his name I pray. Amen.